The year is 1936, and Charlie Chaplin is a real gearhead. The movie, Modern Time. everybody and welcome to unspooled i'm amy nicholson and i am paul Shear, and this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the afi's top 100 greatest films of all time list to see if they really are as good as people say do they hold up and how have they influenced the films that we watch today uh on this episode we'll be talking about charlie chaplin's modern times it's our last chaplin on the list but before we get into that we are going to go back and hear what you had to say about the western shane but even before we do that, Amy, let's let people know that we are doing something that I think is going to be a lot of fun. Yes, Paul, you and I are going to be testing our brains and possibly uh, showcasing how horrible our memories are when we play the Cinephile Game Night. You know, that card game where it's like matching and thinking and six degrees and who's the doctor and what did they do? And oh, my God, and it's a lot of pressure and we're going to play you and me and the two brainiac men that we have behind the scenes, Josh and Devin. We are going to play Cinephile. For charity. That's right. It's a live stream series uh, that you can follow along with on Twitter at hashtag Cinephile Game Night. Um, we'll be raising money for charity. It should be a lot of fun. So make sure you follow us on Twitter and on Instagram to find out the latest details about this. But again, it is June 24th, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And uh, we cannot wait to win. Can we win? Are we competing against each other? I don't know, but we are going to win. You're going down. I'm Team Laker, you're Team Clipper, we're going to beat you. <laughs> oh, Amy, how dare you bring up basketball right now? You know I'm so fragile, I can't talk about the Clippers. Uh, Amy, we talked about Shane last week, and what did the Facebook group think about this film? Did it belong on the list? Did it not belong on the list? They chased Shane out of town, strongly, pistols blazing, said, get out of here, Shane, we don't need you, you're no better than the Clippers, this town is fine, <laughs> alone. I'll let Vanya Ivanov um, at Sean is bald explain the, the general thinking. Uh, Vanya writes, Shane got interesting in about the last 10 minutes. Now we get backstory and pathos. This story has been done better with Unforgiven and Logan. Put that on the AFI. I do not care how many white male boomers had an emotional moment with their closed off dads over this. Take it off. You know, uh, I wow, strong opinion there. You know, Kelsey Hammer was very excited, Amy, that you called out What's my line? She yelled in her kitchen. Uh, she said, thank you, Amy, from a person who's too obsessed with random 1950s game shows. Oh, they um, were the best. It's just people kind of drunk hanging out with skinny microphones. Greatest. I, love I mean, them. that's match game. I mean, that that's <laughs> you can't get any better than that. Um, Rasslor82 writes, I'm baffled by calling the violence and shame grounded and realistic. The hand-to-hand bar fights are so long, comic, and practically over the top like a clockwork orange. Plus, Shane waiting until everyone has to die is practically a meme. See Ebert. So this is all kind of directed at me. Um, I think what I liked about the violence in Shane was that it, it, it seemed a little less heroic. It seemed more violent. And yes, I could understand the idea. Maybe I didn't choose my words perfectly there. Um, I think it felt more violent to me than what I had been used to seeing, where you know people are dispatched pretty quickly or one punch really knocked somebody out. You saw blood here. You saw the force of the bullet. Um, so I think it resonated with me more. The violence resonated with me because it felt like 
it had more power behind it. So I'm amending what I what I said, uh, but that's really what kind of grabbed me about that. Yeah, I, I I felt kind of the same way. I appreciated that we saw Shane take as many punches as he gave for a lot of the fights. Yeah. That it wasn't just like here I am, it's me, Captain Shane, here to save the day. And you know, and Pod Your Head uh, just wants to give a general shout out to us, uh, saying that Unspooled has brought them so much depth and joy. Uh, they love High Noon and Strange Love. Those are the best ones so far. And because of this podcast, uh, Pod Your Head got a library card and got into Hoopla Digital and Canopy. Those are both digital uh, library rental services where you can get these movies for free on your computer. It's amazing. So he or she or they wanted to thank us. Uh, we change their lives. And you know what, Amy? We don't take that lightly. We love changing people's lives. I know, Amy, you do it a lot. <laughs> yes, yes. I shave my cat and then I let his fur go out. I change, I change his life every day. But yes, I'm always happy to give a shout out to library cards because when you have a library card, you can do anything from within your house. That is my shout out to archive.org and Overdrive, two things I could not have survived this whole quarantine without. Oh, and by the way, uh, you're going to be still living in this quarantine for quite some time if you've looked at the California numbers. But uh, so you'll be able to use them more and more from home for months and months to come. Uh, Get that library card today. <laughs> um, I just want to give a shout out to a couple of cool things going on uh, culturally. Um, a lot of movies uh, or movie studios are giving away free rentals of uh, some really interesting socially conscious films. Movies like The Hate You Give, Selma, Just Mercy. Uh, also, Netflix is free streaming the 13th on uh, YouTube, so you can watch that there. And um, Criterion is doing a really cool thing right now where they're highlighting uh, black filmmakers uh, and celebrating the stories that they tell. Uh, so they have a free way that you can access the Criterion Channel uh, digital streamer. I just thought that was a really cool thing that movie studios are doing in this time where I feel like uh, people do want to look at movies to learn a little bit or want to just embrace something that maybe uh, they haven't gone to that much in the past. Yeah, I agree. And you know, what Criterion is doing is really cool. I mean, it's a little bit hard when you navigate their site to figure out what movies are free. There's a little bit of clicking and clicking. But I can tell you that some of them are Oscar Michaud's Body and Soul. Oscar Michaud being a groundbreaking, pioneering Black director who I think is also maybe a contender for this list that we should go into. Uh, there's a film in there, Maya Angelou's Down in the Delta, Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust, Cheryl Denny's The Watermelon Woman. I mean, amazing things. And also some documentaries about the Black experience made by people like Agnes Varda, who in 1970 did a documentary on the Black Panthers. So go in, look around, and if you like to see, they actually have nine total films by Michaud. Only one is free, but it's like your first Michaud is free, then you're, ad then you're addicted. You got to go watch as many Michauds as possible. You know, Amy, um, you realize that we're on the precipice now of a very exciting moment. We are in our final five Final films. five! This is it. We have done 95 uh, films on this show. So today is going to be starting our countdown. I mean, we're starting at Modern Times. We go into It Happened One Night, then into Jaws, uh, then into Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and then Casablanca. What a great way to end this series, Amy. But... It's not over for us. The show is not ending. Um, we are going to continue this show, which I, I hope is not incredibly uh, new news to anybody out there. But we are moving forward. We have a plan. We'll be revealing that over the next couple of episodes, what we're going to be doing and how we're going to be approaching 
our next season. We're calling it a, a new season, a new focus, and it's not going to be exactly what you think. It's not going to just be like taking another list. We're doing something a little bit more creative with it, I think. Indeed, that I am excited to tear into it and talk about movies because, Paul, I love talking about movies with you. I can't believe I've talked about 95 movies with you. That's insane. I know. I really think about that. It's like, I can't believe we're at the end of the list. It feels so fulfilling and then also daunting knowing that there's another giant list of things that we want to be talking about in just a couple of weeks. But uh, I'm going to take a moment to just enjoy that we've gotten to 95, 95 great weeks of watching movies and uh, we're getting ready to wrap it all up. And I wanted to let everybody know that we are going to be doing our very own special premium show. Um, So stay tuned for details on that. You can only access that via Stitcher Premium. But Amy and I have an idea for a fun, interactive game that will be part of it, plus some cool interviews and things like that. So as more details become a part of, as we're ready to release more details, we'll let you know. But right now, there's a lot on the horizon for Unspooled. Uh, So we're very excited about that. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Maybe I can get my own skinny microphone. Amy. I want you to have that mic. I want to have that mic. Even though our audience can't see it, I feel like it would bring a level of professionalism to the show that's desperately needed, especially for season two. Uh, But last week, we were talking about silent films. Uh, We are going to be talking about our third Charlie Chaplin film today. That's three Chaplins on this list. And the question really is, is he overrepresented? We talk a lot about films, you know, Vietnam films and, and Westerns that being How many do we need? How many chaplains do we need on this list? And we wanted to throw it out to you. What would be a great silent film to replace one of the chaplains on this list? And the responses were actually pretty great. So take a listen to that. The silent movie that needs to be on this list is The Crowd, directed by King Vidar. It is about the fake American dream. There's no Harold Lloyd, which I think is wrong. I tell you, the freshman holds up. A silent film that I think should be considered for the list is Eric von Stronheim's Greed. Harold Lloyd in Safety Last, which is absolutely one of the funniest films I've ever seen and features some iconic imagery that has been burned into our consciousness. I feel like our ladies of the silent era are not very well represented on this list. So I'd say let's put on Clara Bow for the OG rom-com It or uh, any of Mary Pickford's movies. I think we need The Great Train Robbery on the list. A Lon Chaney film deserves to be on the AFI list. My pick would be Phantom of the Opera. It doesn't get more iconic than his makeup, his face, his character. I think that's a Lon Chaney movie. He Who Gets Slapped should be on the list because I'm a clown. It's about a clown. It's a beautiful movie about a clown. And there's no Lon Chaney movies on the list. I really love the caller who called in to give a shout out to Clara Bow and Mary Pickford. You know, Mary Pickford, when you look at the history of Hollywood, she is the founding person, the founding movie star. She was bigger than Chaplin at the beginning of their career. She helped launch United Artists. That was her, Chaplin, her husband, Douglas Fairbanks, and D.W. Griffith. D.W. Griffith has a film on here. Chaplin has three. Fairbanks has some contenders. He was more of like a, a legable uh, Chris Evansy type of guy. Um, huh. But Mary Pickford really made this town. She was a person who was a, just a, a philanthropist from the beginning, an activist, a, an amazing person who defined what movie stars are and should be. 
And yeah, the idea that there is no Mary Pickford represented on a list is a little bit like you're cutting off really the person who this town wouldn't exist in the same form without. Mm-hmm. I love this. And you know, I'm not really super familiar with silent films and all of these sound really engaging. I just recently watched The Cabinet of Dr. Calgary on the Criterion Channel streaming service and I was so blown away. I watched it after we watched uh, Sunrise and it was just so beautiful. I know it's not eligible for the AFI list, but it was a, a movie that I thought was so uh, far ahead of its time once again. So I was really, really into that film. Uh, oh, and you didn't tell me you saw that. I'm so happy. Yeah, I was really, uh, really excited to check it out. And I, that's why I love Criterion. There's just sat at home one night, didn't know what to watch, found that and just loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, but, you know, not to, not to kind of tip my hat too early. Speaking about films I love, Amy, are you ready to talk about Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times? Am I ever? Can you tell through my silent excitement as I waggle my eyebrows at you? I I mean, yeah, 100% because you're that good of a voice artist. All right, Amy, let's get ready to... I did it silently. (laughs) That's the way it should be. The year is 1936. FDR is elected to a second term as president. Sunscreen is invented, as is the helicopter and the Zippo lighter. Billboard magazine publishes its first pop music chart, and Fred Astaire's The Way You Look Tonight dominates. The Hindenburg takes its maiden voyage, as does the Queen Mary, and the popular films are The Alamo, Swing Time, Dimples, and today's film, Modern Times. It ranks number 78 on the 2007 AFI Top 100 list, up a little from its rank of number 81 in 1997. Let's take a listen to, actually, some dialogue from this film, because while this is a silent film, it is also Charlie Chaplin's first talking. Section five, speed her up, fall one. All right, so Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Who is in it is our beloved old buddy, Charlie Chaplin, playing not quite the tramp, but a factory worker, is how he calls himself in this film. For the first time in any of the films that we've seen by Charlie Chaplin, he's given a full-on co-star partner, who is Paulette Goddard playing the gamine. Um, She's a very poor girl who lives by the docks. He's a very poor guy who keeps getting fired from factory jobs, like the one that you just heard in that clip. And together, the two of them try to take on the increasingly industrialized, mechanized world of giant factories that spit out people, of unions and cops and people who keep throwing Charlie Chaplin back in jail, of a world in which, you know, there is not a lot of humanity for poor people like them. I'll just say by the front, we have done three Charlie Chaplin films now. Every time I see a Chaplin film, I'm like, this is my favorite one. This is the one that needs to go on the list. And once again, I believe that Modern Times is my favorite Chaplin one. This one needs to go on the list. Last time it was The Gold Rush, the time before there was City Lights. I'm going to try to stick with Modern Times now. This film is just as relevant today as it was in, in 1936. Amy, I can't agree with you more. This is the first time from 
top to bottom, from T to B, I've really loved a Charlie Chaplin film. Like, I love this film. I laughed out loud. It took me by surprise. I thought it was elevated filmmaking. It was beautiful to look at. It had a point. I thought Paulette Goddard was amazing. The film is, to me, the best Chaplin that I've seen. And I haven't seen a lot, but I will say that over the course of this podcast, when we announced that we'll be doing Modern Times, there was a part in me last week I was like, oh, another Chaplin. Okay. And I am so happy to have had this kind of moment with Chaplin because I've been feeling really badly about myself that I I enjoyed Gold Rush. I, I have enjoyed the other films, but I didn't like I maybe you should say I appreciated them, but I didn't enjoy them. I didn't love them. I love this movie. It it just it tickled me in every possible way. I, I just um yeah, I love it. I love it too. And you know, as you said, like this is nineteen thirty six. We are well into sound films now. We're almost a decade into sound films. And Chaplin is still doing that thing where he's like, I'm going to make them black and white. I'm going to make them mostly silent. But if I have to use sound here to make them hip, I'm going to be really specific about the sounds I use when I use speaking, as you even heard in that clip that you played. You know, he makes a point of using sound to hear the sound of the factory, like the thrumming and the mechanization. He wants that to be what you're aware of. You know, nothing like, footsteps walking through the hallways of the factory. He wants you to only hear the machinery. And then for most of the film, the only voices that you do hear are people speaking in ways that aren't human. People speaking through gigantic big brotherish telephones at their workers and through through microphones. You know, very little of the of the dialogue here is actually human to human. Well, you know, it was interesting because you said in the beginning he's not the tramp, but I do think he is the tramp here in this film. I mean, he dresses like the tramp, he acts like the tramp. But I think in the beginning, this was Charlie Chaplin's attempt at making a talkie. He was he wrote a fully uh, dialogue-based script. I've seen pictures of it online. He even shot two test scenes. Um, and at a certain point, he was like, you know what? I've done the tramp silently. I can't voice him now. I can't really voice him. And he does voice him at the end through a song that is in gibberish. So even... The song at the end, while it being sound, is not a language that anyone can decipher. And he uses, you know, miming through, he uses miming to show you what the song means. It's it's really a brilliant way of giving a big fuck you to sound pictures, which is something he didn't even think was going to stick around for, you know, a couple of years. I love how he evolved. I feel like he elevated a silent picture to match the times. And that's why I think this movie feels so um, relevant today. I think you're exactly right. He uses sound here as a way of saying, you don't really need sound. Let me prove to you what matters more. Let's even play a little bit of that gibberish song because you hear that the crowd and it is, I mean, the setup for this is that he's got, he's been given a job. He's supposed to be a singing waiter. He can't remember the lyrics of his song. When he gets out there, you know, he's written them on the cuffs of his sleeve. He makes this grand hand gesture and the lyrics fly off and he has to just wing them on the spot. And he kills, despite not having any words that any of the audience can understand. (laughs) 
L'aspinage au la bouchon, si grette côte belle, si rakis bacaletto, si le tout la tilatoua. You know, that, that song at the end really is a perfect example of how this film just continues to catch you off guard and just kind of build upon everything because this is a big moment. This is, you know, the tramp's voice on Speaking. screen. Yeah. yeah it's the this last... is the kind of thing that got advertisements. Garbo speaks, you know. Yeah. You're going to hear the tramp sing. You're going to hear him sing in a language that is actually kind of like Edward James Olmos's city speak, right? It's just like yes. a, a conglomeration of real languages made into a mishmash. Uh, and I love that it's at the very end and, you know, you have to sit there the entire time for this moment. And even at that point, he's like, and I'm not even going to sing it in a language that is understandable. Um, but I think what really took me about this film, besides, I think, the technical mastery or the interesting ways that he was combining talking and silent was what he was saying. And you're right. Like this movie is so relevant. I just, I wanted to rewatch it again. I wanted to tell people to watch it because I was like, wow, he is, I think this is the most pointed film of his that we've done. Obviously I think people could make an argument that uh, the great dictator is another one of his very pointed uh, films, but this felt to me like, it was more than just bits. It was a point of view. And maybe that's what I've been missing from his other films because it's not his mastery of, of his body and the way that he directs. It was, but to me, it was something, there was some there there on this. You know, it was, it was saying something. And I felt like it was saying something that he's always wrestling with, this idea of, you know, of being impoverished and wanting food. But here it felt like we were in a real world having those discussions too. It didn't seem as heightened as other versions of this. Yeah. I mean, part of what happens here in Chaplin's career is he makes City Lights, you know, another film that incorporated bits of sound into mm -hmm. the landscape to be like, we're a silent film with some sound. Again, mechanized people talking through like megaphones, um, giving speeches. And then when City Lights comes out, he goes on this 16 month world tour to promote the film. And he goes everywhere and he mm -hmm. meets everybody. You know, he meets Einstein, he meets H.G. Wells, he meets Churchill. And he sees firsthand how bad the depression is, not just in America, but everywhere. And so he's watching his audience members. He's seeing what, what his audience members are going through during this time of depression, you know, that everybody is living a life as poor as when he had growing up. And during this tour, he winds up meeting Gandhi. And he says, you know, to Gandhi, like, they have this meeting of the minds. And it was very much on Chaplin's point, point that he met Gandhi, less on Gandhi's view. Gandhi had never heard of him. Gandhi was like, who's this guy? But one of Gandhi's oh, wow. aides was like, he's this hero of honoring the poor. So Gandhi decides to meet with him. And one of the things that Chaplin asked Gandhi when he meets him is, you know, Gandhi was on this big crusade to um, bring back handcrafted fabric in India and have a living where people in India could support their families making fabric on their own. And so Gandhi was fighting against machines because Gandhi felt like if we have factories making fabric, the poor people of India are going to have less money in their pockets. And so he tells Chaplin about that because Chaplin is like, what is your problem with machines? Like, what's going on? Why is, this a, why is this a crisis issue? And Gandhi said, you know, I am not against machines, but I cannot bear it when these very machines take away a man's work from him. And that today we are your slaves because um, we cannot over -attract, overcome our attraction for your goods. And and that just hits home with Chaplin. So he takes all of these ideas of everything he's seeing. What is the world doing to make everybody poor? Shouldn't we be getting better than we were when I was a child and I was starving and I was hungry? You know, the hunger that we saw him put into the gold rush. 
and it wasn't getting better. So this is what he this is where he channels that. He's like, what what is the problem with machines? And so he makes a movie where he literally gets swallowed up by a machine. You see a machine break him in the very opening sequences of this film. I mean, you see a machine do a mental breakdown of him and also suck him into the machine. What I love about this movie, too, is we're talking about machines and he's working at this factory in the beginning. And we don't know what this factory makes. And I think that that's an incredibly intentional choice. It it doesn't even make a difference. Like it is just you are we are he is a cog in this big giant machine. He becomes a cog in the actual machine as well. But I love that idea, like the uselessness of it. Like it's we're we're trying to do so much about productivity that we're forgetting about the workers. We're treating them like a phrase that has been bandied around human capital. Like, you know, this idea that like, you know, this is not, we are not just, you know, pieces of commerce, you know, we are human beings. And, and I think I really was struck by that. I, we've talked so much about the economy, not we, but there's been so much talk in right now and, in the United States about our economy and getting our economy back and getting our workers back. But the truth is, is, you know, we're devaluing our workers by maybe putting them in unsafe positions to get our economy going. And that's what this movie is talking about. I mean, it's right there. It, 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 it is, it, you know, and that's, that I am so connected to. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I mean, I think there could be a lower form of comedy if the three stooges maybe had done this, they'd be going to work at, I don't know, a rubber banana factory or something to underscore the ludicrousness of what their job is and why it's happening. But that that isn't at all what Chaplin's after. And, you know, he's making this at a time when machines were thought of even more than today as saviors. You know, Henry Mm -hmm. Ford's factory was only two decades old at that time, you know, really creating this idea of assembly lines. And Chaplin had visited those assembly lines. You know, he visited them in the 20s. You know, these things that were supposed to be saving America. There was still this idea that, if a man worked at an assembly line, he would just have to work fewer hours. He'd work fewer hours, but still make tons of money, you know, because Ford paid his workers okay. And so everybody was hoping that machines would save us. And Chaplin goes to these factories and he sees, you know, he's supposed to see that they're saving us, but he sees that the factory men are having nervous breakdowns. And, And I love how he shows you here how that happens, that there's such a disconnect between the man who owns the factory and the man giving the orders to the people working in the factory and the man over the shoulder of the people working in the factory and then the men actually trying to be screwing on lug nuts. And this idea of a repetitive action stripping away your humanity. I mean, he he literally is frayed at the end of a shift. And I love this section where the inventors come in and, and appeal to the boss that they have figured out something to help his workers work more, which is like an automated eating machine. And the idea that like everything is becoming this how can you get to the next thing quicker? And that's something as a culture we haven't gotten away from. How can we get more done faster? Um, and we do that to ourselves, you know, through our devices and we need to get out in front of everything immediately. I feel like there is this idea that, yes, our bosses do this to us. Yes, companies do this to us. But we also take it on ourselves, this idea of like, um, we have to be incredibly productive. We, you know, the idea of even, I mean, drive through to a certain extent is that like eat and drive, go do it. Like, you know, it's like there is this, I think America, and I can only speak to America because I'm not smart enough to speak to the rest of the world, uh, is obsessed with this idea of saving time and being productive and productivity equaling, you know, your self-worth. 
Yeah, exactly. I want to play that whole clip of these, I guess you could call them disruptors of the lunch industry. <laughs> you know, they're really no different than what we have coming out of Silicon Valley today. Here's the thing that you already do that works fine. We're going to just disrupt it by this machine, make it more complicated, add more steps out of convenience, quote unquote. Um, I would have played it in full because there's so many jokes happening here. Even just when you first meet the machine, they wheel it into his boss's office and the salesmen don't even bother speaking themselves. You know, it's a, they just play a tape to let the tape speak for the machine so that these all these humans are just standing around looking inessential, the way that humans, I think, he's worried are being treated. And I want you to listen for one line in here that I think is a secondary elbow from Chaplin, which is you hear somebody say the phrase, actions speak louder than words. Good morning, my friends. This record comes to you through the Sales Talk Transcription Company, Incorporated. Your speaker, the mechanical salesman. May I take the pleasure of introducing Mr. J. Willicombe Billows, the inventor of the Billows feeding machine, a practical device which automatically feeds your men while at work. Don't stop for lunch. Be ahead of your competitor. The Billows feeding machine will eliminate the lunch hour, increase your production, and decrease your overhead. Allow us to point out some of the features of this wonderful machine. Its beautiful aerodynamic streamlined body, its smoothness of action made silent by our electroporous metal ball bearings. Let us acquaint you with our automaton soup plate. It's compressed air blower. No breath necessary. No energy required to cool the soup. Notice the revolving plate with the automatic food pusher. Observe our countershaft double knee action corn feeder with its synchromesh transmission, which enables you to shift from high to low gear by the mere tip of the tongue. Then there is the hydro-compressed sterilized mouth wiper. Its factors of control ensure against spots on the shirt front. These are but a few of the delightful features of the Billows feeding machine. Let us demonstrate with one of your workers, for actions speak louder than words. Remember, if you wish to keep ahead of your competitor, you cannot afford to ignore the importance of the Billows feeding machine. And, and, you know, one thing that I really admire so much about modern times is the way that Chaplin lays out these rolling jokes. You know, a joke starts to start starts to begin. You know, you see like him just cranking and tweaking and tweaking with his wrenches. And then you start to see the world through he does, through his eyes and you see it get more extreme, you know, where you're like, oh, no, that secretary has buttons on her ass that look exactly like his lug nuts. Oh, right. no, here comes a woman with buttons on her boobs that look exactly like her, your lug nuts. And he puts you in his mindset. So you're always gasping at what he reveals next to you. And he does that again with this with the feeding machine, you know. He's showing you this feeding machine. We're seeing how it works. It's almost like a heist film. You know, here's how we're going to do it. Here's how it's going to play out. Here's how the feeding machine works. And he lays it all out just so you can watch it go completely on the fritz. And here's another great example of him using sound effects. The sound effects he adds to the script when he's trying to eat the corn in this robot machine. Mm. And by the way, just to picture him, the, the uncomfortableness that he's put his body in, his hands are pinned underneath the table. He's got his head almost in a brace you know he's making he's making this feeding machine look like confinement and then this sound effect i just i adore it And again, in, even in the way you hear the, the fritzing, you hear that comedy pacing of him. It's not over. Here comes the joke again. Here comes the joke again. Right. Now you're onto it. You know, I was actually even getting nervous for him because they're 
force feeding him steak so quickly. I was like, he's not having enough time to really chew those pieces. Um, that whole sequence took seven days to film. It's a beautifully done moment. And it's also an interesting moment because on one hand, Chaplin's character is happy to be there, right? And I think that's how we all are. Like, he's getting fed in a, in a, in a fine meal. Now, the only reason why he's getting fed this way is because his bosses want him to go back to work sooner. And I think this is, again, this push-pull you know, Apple can be incredibly guilty of this too. Like this device will change your life. But at the same time, we are staring at our phones all the time. You know, we have everything available to us. You know, this, you know, we we are brought in by, there's something about this work. There's something about these machines. There's something about this idea, going back to what I was saying before, that we we want, we need, like there there is a push-pull. It's, it's giving us something. Even if it's yeah. just getting a like on your Instagram page, it's like, oh, yeah, like, all right, great. You don't realize that you're, you know, a rat in a cage. <laughs> you're right. And yeah, I, I mean, I too felt nervous for him. Like He's getting lug nuts shoved in his mouth. And I, I think that is a testimony to what a great actor Chaplin is in the sequence because he's controlling the machine underneath the table. You know, he's the one moving the buttons to make everything oh, wow. move and spin around and shove lug nuts in his mouth. And he's able to do that and consciously be aware of how everything is moving like a marionette while having absolute hatred in his eye for like the lip blotter when it comes and rocks around I that know. perfect comedy timing and his fear and his panic, like that he can split his hand from his face like that and have them both be doing two different things. You know what I think is really interesting about this movie overall, too, is this idea that he is a character that is very unique in the sense that you would assume this would be the perfect thing for him. Like, he's got a job. He can buy food. And yes, it may drive him a little bit crazy, but he's no longer a tramp. But yet this entire film is about pulling him back in to being a tramp because there's something inauthentic to the real world, whether that job is a security guard protecting a store from, you know, people like he was or, or, you know, like there is a, there's this idea that there's a freedom in being outside of the system. And I, and I feel like it's not like the freedom of like, oh, he just wants to be, he wants to take uh, the free things from society. I think he just wants to not be literally tied down to a, a, as a, a cog in a machine. You're right. I mean, I think we have, we grew up in like a welfare mom era. Mm -hmm. And this film is, you know, 50 years before that is trying to correct the impression of that people who are poor are poor because they're lazy. Because right. there's a thing that, that Chaplin's character keeps trying to do, that the tramp keeps trying to do is get a job. He keeps trying right. to get a job and he keeps getting hired and things keep going wrong, but he wants to work. It's the system that's broken. And it's a movie, though, that breaks a traditional mold of film, right? Because we're looking at our hero. Our hero is he starts off having a job at a high profile company. And at the end, he goes off into the sunset as a tramp. Like it's the reverse. It's the reverse. Like, you know, we would normally see the tramp succeeding at the end. Like he gets a job. He's the head of the company. He's doing well. And this movie is really saying, no, that's not the way. I thought that was a really powerful statement uh, that like, this character isn't about um, 
following the traditional norms. And especially at that time, like that's a very, you know, it's a hopeful ending, but it's an ending that is sending him back to poverty. But he seems yeah. happier than he's ever been. And in those moments, like the only other time he seems truly happy is when he's in that little um, cabin, that little like shack, you know, uh, and, you know, he goes out and goes swimming and they're, they're having their, their meals together. Like, but the true happiness of this character is around this woman, the gamine, uh, who, uh, Paulette Dard, who I thought is so amazing in this. She's so good. Um, she's so amazing. She's such a, a vibrantly alive person in this movie. Oh my gosh, she's so beautiful. You can't take your eyes off of her in a way either. It's like you're just like you're just kind of caught up in her. Yeah, no, and I want to say kind of what you're talking about with this ending. I think there is a world in which the ending would be like, oh no, he accidentally discovered that he is the rightful heir to the factory, and he's a multimillionaire. And the happy ending would be like he's the richest guy, and that he'd be like, I'm rich. This is wonderful. But the tramp never seems to want to be that rich, really. You know, no. he wants. A fantasy middle class life. He wants a nice little living room and he wants to have enough food for breakfast. He just wants and, food. He always yeah. wants food. I mean, that's the one thing that I love is like, I think Charlie Chaplin knew that idea. Like that's the most food and love are like the two most important things that you need. Exactly. And I mean, I love the whole fantasy sequence that he does, you know, with the lovely fantasy music and he's able to pick an orange from his window, this image of what I think we wish California was like. And right. suddenly he's living in a house that's not stark and covered in wood. You know, there's flower prints and chintz patterns. It's just middle class, you know? It, well, I don't know if every middle class has their own person, person has their own cow with milk, but it's not like a butler bringing you milk. It's I got my own milk from this cow. By the way, you know that that sequence needed to be trimmed because of vulgarity. Um, that the Hayes Code thought it was too disgusting to see the udders of that cow. So they made him cut away from that, which I thought was so funny. There's a couple of things that the Hayes Code cut out from the film. Uh, they didn't like uh, the, the cellmate uh, knitting. Uh, they didn't like uh, the stomach rumbling part with the minister's wife when he was getting released from jail. And um, there's a whole gag with a bra. They didn't like that as well. Um, but it's like, it's so funny how we talk about the Hayes code as being these bigger issues and, you know, uh, indecency and every one of those things are so benign. I feel like even in the, in the 1930s, I feel like that's benign. Yeah. I mean, way to utter shame, man. It's just, it's a cow. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want? Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, like them being worried about knitting in the prison is really them being worried about chaplain saying you know that there's gay people who exist on the planet i think that's what that is like they were really uncomfortable to any sort of a hint that um there's a homoeroticism in the prison it really terrified them they're well, comfortable I mean, but, with the cocaine joke but like knitting. but it is also an interesting point of view too because it's like is this a what is this joke saying right like are we are you you know are you saying that there are gay people in jail or are you saying that they're like I, I wonder, I was walking that line, I mean, and obviously 1930s is a different time, um, but I was like, oh, I wonder what is funny about this to him. Is it that it's just a burly man who is doing something that's, you know, uh, stereotypically feminine or is it, uh, you know, or is it just like an incongruous idea? Like, you know, like, oh, in jail, you're just doing this thing that seems very homemakery. I, I don't know. I, I can quite put my finger on what was being said there besides this, like, I felt like the juxtaposition of being in jail and seeing knitting. But when I read that the Hayes Code called it like, it was more like 
oh, that's a gay character. It's like, oh, I didn't read it like that. But, you know, it's it's interesting that you're that was right. his point of view. That's actually a great question because I've just, yeah, you're right. I only laughed at the juxtaposition, I guess, thinking maybe it's sort of like the tramp himself. He's not a guy who's supposed yeah. to be in prison, but here he is. But you're right. Yeah. Like, it, even, I mean, even as recently as 10 years ago, that joke would probably mean the tramp better watch himself. You know, the tramp right. might get attacked, which is which, the <laughs> ugly part of that joke. I mean, didn't we just uh, do a movie on this show or, oh, I guess it was uh, in the house party episode. We talked about this idea of when kid goes to jail, like that he's going to, you know, get raped in this moment. You know, this like this idea of like gay panic. I mean, and I'll go, there's so many things I want to say that are positive about this film, but I can't ignore the world that we are in right now and the way I'm looking at things through a lens and say like, I was also pretty shocked that, you know, the only person of color that we see in this entire film is in the prison paddy wagon, a woman, uh, a, a black woman in this prison paddy wagon. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm so used to not seeing, you know, black people in Charlie Chaplin films. And so I was like, oh, I guess that's, you know, again, just kind of obviously a more tuned to it and looking at things with a little bit more of a discerning eye. And and then I was like, oh, but wait, you do have one in the sequence and this is how you cast them. I thought that was actually an interesting point of view, and especially coming from somebody that we just talked about was world traveled, went, spoke to Gandhi, spoke to Einstein, saw the world, interacted with audiences, but yet still in a film that he is taking on everything is hands on for him. He's doing second unit stuff. He's doing first unit stuff. He's writing. He's like, everyone says like, you know, for most directors, he's the most involved director, you know, just does everything that he would choose with this worldview to to do that. Yeah, that's true. That is another joke where you're not exactly sure what he's trying to say. Like, was that the only place he could think of to have an actor of color in the mm-hmm. film? Or, and he was just like, well, they'd probably be being sent off to prison in this world. Yeah, does, that's what, I, yeah. He does, he does, I mean, he does literally make that character the butt of the joke. The joke in that scene is that the ride is really bumpy and he keeps putting his butt in her face. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, yeah, I just, I was really just fascinated by this idea that he was so worldly, but yet there are a couple things in this film that are incredibly uh, unworldly. You know, they are, they're incredibly kind of small minded. Um, and, you know, to think of. They're this like very so- lazy central casting. Like, so that's all central casting mm-hmm. would make it look. And I'm not going to question what the stereotypes are. Right. Yeah. So that, know, I thought it, yeah. Or, or creating the stereotypes. I guess he's creating the stereotypes. Especially when the film that you're making is making such a statement, you know, such a statement about uh, people, you know, and how they are just a part of this larger machine. I also want to get into how I feel like this film. And I, I think my issue a lot of the times with Charlie Chaplin is it feels repetitive. It feels to me like his films, while amazing to watch, kind of we go back to similar like set pieces. And here, the set pieces just continue to change and they heighten. And uh, I didn't feel the way I felt in previous Chaplin films. Where I'm like, okay, I get what's going on here. That's funny. Sure. It was more than just a... 
I feel like he, he told the story through many different ways. And I don't know if that was because he was forced to write it. So this, it had more of a, um, a discernible story. So the story was moving forward. So it just didn't rest in funny moments, right? Because I feel like the rest of the films, and, and City Lights definitely is getting towards this, but the other ones kind of just like exist as like, okay, here's a scenario. Let's do like six or seven fun things in this world. I don't know. I, this one just caught me. And I'm sure there are chaplain people out there going, God damn you, shut up. That's not true. But that's at least my impression of it, as I feel like this movie really kind of deals with something, moves it away, deals with another thing, moves it away. And like you're you're getting to see so many different locations, so many different places. I just found myself constantly engaged, you know, by that. I hear what you're saying, because one thing with Chaplin and the Tramp is that the Tramp doesn't change personality you know the right. the tramp the tramp is a character who you know he's like mickey mouse mickey mouse doesn't change personality the tramp enters this and we all and know that mickey it. mouse is a great personality yeah what is his personality again i am here i'm, I'm here a, and i have pants on um, i mean it's a, his personality and qui-gon jinn are two of the hardest personalities <laughs> to lay down it's like i know who those characters are i cannot tell you how they would react in any given situation <laughs> yeah, that's why I'll take Donald Duck any day. Uh, but the tramp, like we know that the tramp, I appreciate that the tramp's character in the sort of hard ball that he is, he's almost like a bowling ball. Like he rolls through a scene and things happen to him or he don't. He gets pushed in a gutter or he knocks down pins. You can't really tell, but he just keeps going on. He doesn't, he doesn't really get permanently dented. He's always plucky. I think that's one of the yeah. things I admire the most about the tramp is he never has a lot of self-pity for himself and he doesn't ask for the audience's pathos. You know, when the right. tramp is sitting down in the cafeteria table in prison, and I want to hear this music actually as he's sitting down, because I think it too is a good way of Chaplin using music to underscore plot mm. and saying like, you can literally hear in this music that the tramp is a character who's out of step with everybody. <laughs> sits down at this table you know after this march and his cellmate is like my bread and he just stubbornly steals it back like he never goes for the joke of poor guy cowed by the bigger guy eating the bread or the poor tramp he can't get the bread the tramp just keeps trying to get that bread that tramp's like i'm gonna keep eating that bread and he is resilient in that way where he doesn't ever seem to feel permanently bruised he just soldiers on i mean just like he says at the end of the film like what's the use of trying we'll never say die you know we're gonna get along right and so you're right. Like he is a person who can't change through the films. Like this is never, a, these are never films structured around the idea of like a character's growth. You know, and I will say that maybe there's one moment here that seemed different, but tell me if I'm wrong. I feel like when he takes the blame for the stealing of the bread, that felt like a moment of like, oh, interesting. But it seems to me that he'll bend over backwards for a pretty woman at any given point. But I did like the idea that he, went back to jail to to help the helpless. There was something about it that I thought that was like a, a nice moment. Like, I mean, by the way, uh, you know, because he does seem like he's always kind of creating mayhem around him, but that was a moment where he was selfless. And I feel like that's not something that we always see with the Tramp. I, I'm a little bit in City Lights. I think he uh, was selfish. The, wait, he wasn't selfish. She said that he took the bread and he got yeah, let himself wait. get arrested. 
I think it was selfish because he wanted to get arrested. He thought prison was so much nicer than being on the outside. I mean, when he was in prison, right. he had a cute little, he got a cute little dorm room. I don't know why I just called it a dorm. He had a cute <laughs> little cell block. Like he was right. reading the newspapers, but it was either the newspapers say, were saying things like strikes and riots, bread lines right. broken by unruly mob, but he's not a political man. He doesn't really care. Like he has a Lincoln poster, home sweet home, knit again, knitting a fresh flowers, tea. Like he wants Maybe to be right. arrested. It's I, a little I, I, selfish. Uh, you're right. I mean, I know he wants to get back to prison. And by the way, that's also interesting about prison, too. Like the idea that, I mean, it's a, uh, so much to be said about prison reform and, and all that. But for the just the idea that prison is a safer space to a certain degree, you know, uh, what he's saying is, you know, to be put through the system where you're not treated human, at least in jail, you have a room, you, you can, you have a, you know, you have a roof over your head, you have three meals a day. And uh, you are being taken care of. And I know that's a very base point of view of prison. But I mean, I think that's what he's saying is like, it's amazing that prison does a better job of taking care of the person than a company or a work. You know, they, they they work them harder. You would think if we didn't know anything about our culture, it would be reversed. Like the prisoners would have to be doing this hard labor and, and you know, and the worker would have the roof and the food and, and the comfort, safety. Yeah, exactly. Which is, you know, why I think it, at least we have Paulette Goddard being like, I don't want to go to prison. You know, she's this wild right. character figure. I love that first shot of her. You know, she's stealing the bananas. She has the knife in her mouth. I mean, basically, it looks like she's in a pirate movie. You know, she's on a boat stealing yes. bananas, running across boats for freedom. I mean, she looks like something wild and untamed. You can't imagine that character in prison. Like, who would that character be in prison? There's something there's a part of her that would break. Absolutely. And by the way, I do love her mugshot. Her mugshot is such a like, oh, who me? Like it's, you know, it's just like it's like over the shoulder, an over the shoulder mugshot. I don't know when they took that picture or how they even <laughs> got it. But I, I, you know, and I do um, love how this film tracks that story. Her story, you know, is doesn't just get like um, left behind. I feel like Charlie Chaplin's story, too, like they really they really follow that thread. And obviously at the very end of the film, she is arrested for being a delinquent. I also was thinking about that too. I was like, Oh wait, she's a child. And goes back to all of our problematic Charlie Chaplin uh, issues. But I was like, Oh, so he's dating. I mean, I would imagine a 17 year old girl. Is that the girl he's in love with a 17 year old? Yeah. Right. I was questioning that too. I mean, 17 would fall in line with a lot of his exes. Polly Goddard was older. I think she's in her early twenties in this film, but yeah, yeah. Like, of course the tramps in love with a girl who's wanted by the cops for being a young juvenile delinquent who can't take care <laughs> of herself. Okay. Um, but yeah, to that casting point, I will concede that this also falls under the good fellows and branch of an actor who's a little bit old to be as young as she is. And I don't know what it adds to the film to have her be that young. She could be in trouble for something else. Yeah, I don't know to why me, we need to have her running from from the authorities who would just think she's too young to be out in the world. Like to me, there's a there's a better story to be told here where her her children are taken away. We we already have seen that. You know, we saw that in the DW Griffith film. Like, you know, Maybe she's a single mom who can't really provide and the government takes away her children. I mean, although that would complicate things because I feel like she's more pure and virginal not to have children, uh, you know, in this world. Uh, no, I'm not saying I agree with that, uh, but I'm just saying that, like, there is a better story there that she's showing another side of this poverty. Like, because she can't provide, they take her children away. So she's forced into this world instead of just being the older daughter. Um, but whatever. 
Uh, again, these be, are yeah. these are nitpicky points, but you know uh, he's he is making a socially conscious film. So to show somebody that has a slightly different perspective or reason to why they or what they're fighting against in society, I think would be interesting. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this in the Gold Rush. You know, the girl that he's in love with in the Gold Rush, she's there because she has to earn money as a prostitute. That's really the mm. only way a woman can be making money in in that society. But in that film, Chaplin kind of lets it go. It's like, yeah, that's probably what's happening. It's okay. And I appreciate that here he's like, here is the full female point of view of how does she try to get by and survive in this world. You know, he, they, Paulette Goddard is treated like such an equal character in this film. Like the tramp yes. has a partner. They are going through this separately but together. Like they both she, have their own narrative lines. She is equal to him. And that's the other thing that I thought was so interesting. It's the first time, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, where I felt like this character didn't have a negative trait. Like, you know, um, and we talked about the, the prostitute. I think that there's a, an element of, oh, she's mean and she's catty. Um, and the and for the other, you know, in City Lights, the, the woman. The was so the, nice. Virginia Shell was yes. just like, she's sweet and she's blind. And then maybe she's a little mean when she has her sight back and she won't. Well, she, she is mean. She's right yeah. out. She is mean. And, and I also think that there's something about her being blind that kind of lowers. And I'm not, I'm not saying this. I'm just saying that, like, there is something weird that he's he like kind of taking advantage of her yeah pitiable yeah there's a way you can pity her in a different way in the way that he set her up you know she's, where she, she yeah. needs help is how he frames where, that character where paulette goddard is just a fully realized character who has i think like i know her and and maybe that was again I'm, I'm wrestling with why this movie struck you know struck so hard with me and i think it was because i was compelled by all the characters i felt like all the characters had these moments even in the scene when they're robbing the um, when these uh, group of thieves come into the the uh, the shopping department store. You know the idea that they're not just thieves; they're they're actually there because they're hungry, right? So then you see that, and then it's camaraderie of like, oh my gosh, I work with this guy. This guy is great, and they and they bond over the fact that they are look. They're just both trying to survive in this world, and I don't know. There's something really. I feel like these characters are more gray than black and white and because this is like the last tramp right this is the last tramp movie right um he i think is growing also as a writer you know it's like it everything is becoming richer and and i think that's the the element of sound that's in this film that is not you're not hearing it but you're seeing like films are getting more complex and so his stories are getting more complex and that to me, was exciting. Can I also say one other thing I love about Paulette Goddard in this film, which is she is a poor person who looks like a poor person. You know, not just the dirty smudges of ash on her face. Yes. But her hair is filthy. Like, she actually walks through this movie with filthy hair. And then when they redo her and she's in the fantasy sequence where they own a house, she gets to clean her hair. And then she starts to be a singer in the restaurant. She has cleaner hair. But there are parts where she really looks dirty and lived in and the the lack of glamour that she's willing to show. I appreciate that. Yeah. But I also have to ask, you know, when she gets turned in by that woman for stealing bread, is that woman, the original Karen? <laughs> you know what, Amy? I think you're a hundred percent right. You see, this is why this movie is relevant even to today. That woman is the worst. She's like, she's stealing bread. I'm going to turn her in. 
then you know the chaplain takes the blame and this this karen is like no no go get the girl though she comes back to make sure that paulette is arrested for bread of course part of why i think paulette goddard gets more weight behind her in this film, gets to be more of an equal, is because they were in an an eight-year relationship. He was in love with Paulette Goddard. He really saw her potential. He first met her when she had been dyeing her hair blonde to be a showgirl. And he was like, dye your hair brown. Let's make some movies. Let's do some things. He shaped her career. And I think he wanted to show off a little bit of what he shaped. But she's just terrific on her own. And I think that accounts for maybe part of the narrative generosity that he shows to her character here that he didn't show earlier. And even though Big Bill, the guy who tries to rob the department store, is there because he's hungry, even though he's like, we are not burglars, we are hungry. How cool is it that he can open a champagne bottle with a gunshot? He's just like, boom, champagne. Champagne's open now. By the way, (laughs) uh, did they used to store giant vats of liquor like that in department stores? And could you just go there with a jug? I would love that. That's a great uh, way of getting getting a bunch of liquor. This is not that long after Prohibition, really. And so I didn't know that they treated alcohol in department stores kind of like when I used to get kombucha refills in a a growler at Gelson's. I would go and get. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's how they used to sell alcohol. That's amazing. I mean, it was Um, pretty cool alcohol, too. It was like sherry and rum and port. I know. All the the classy things that you want to have with a little bit of cheese. While we're in this department store segment. I think this is one of the most, well, here's what I'll say. This is one of the best segments in the movie to me. Like I love, it's constantly playing house, constantly playing dress up, enjoying the comforts of these, these places. Right. Um, but the, the roller skating scene here is amazing. It's, it's very funny to me though, that the, the image, the meme of this film is him being stuck in the machine. You know, um, you know, he's, he's a cog in this machine because that's such a small part of the actual film being a cog in the machine like that. You know, I, I thought like, oh, that's going to be the big, you know, thing. And like when it happens in the beginning, it's kind of over one, two, three. I mean, it happens to another character later. But I did think that was interesting. Like, like, oh, that's the that's the image from this movie is that one little moment. And I guess it does sum up a lot of what this film is. But the roller skating scene is really impressive. The blind, you know, the blindfolded roller skating. It is. It, it is. I mean, I want to hear a little bit of that music really fast because it's just to set the tone. Again, he's inventing special effects here, perfecting them. You know, he's doing this mm-hmm. with matte paintings so that he can paint the bottom of the department store and get that close to the edge without being, without, of course, killing himself as he would if this was real. And then I kept thinking, you know, what is the metaphor here? Because I get the metaphor of him going into the cogs. You know, the metaphor of the cogs is like he actually becomes one with the machine. The machine is turning him into a machine. You know, he's gotten absorbed by a mechanized system. I want to talk about the roller skating too. I just want to say, like, as we're talking about the machine, do you think that part of this is Chaplin even wrestling with being a filmmaker? Because that machine looks like a camera to me, right? And it looks like he's being fed through like film. And is he also making a statement about being trapped in silent film and rebelling against the talkies? Like, is there something about this war with this machine? The machine is oh, now being used for something bigger and he's fighting that. He doesn't want to do that machine. He wants to be do his own thing. He wants to be free from the machines. But the machine and the technology of film is evolving and, and becoming maybe even in his mind, 
you know, maybe that's something they can relate to. Just a, a thought I had, uh, you know, I think that there, there could be a fight. There. I mean, he clearly had a fight with this. I like that. I mean, the music when he goes into the machine is romantic. It, mm. it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like battle music. It's not like dun, 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 help. How do I get out? It's like it's it's dreamy. I'm inserting yeah. myself in here, which is also a nice metaphor for slipping into a film and kind of like I am this person who slides into your film projectors and gives you this dream. Right. But this all... machine is yeah, this machine is forcing me to keep up with it. If yeah. I don't keep up with it, I'll be eaten by it. And I think that that's something as a director is like if I don't if I don't do sound, I'm going to be I, my career will be destroyed. Yeah. You know? Or you know that he was at least definitely looking around at the people making studio system films in the 30s, which is by then such a solidified crank them out industry, cranking out hundreds a year, each studio cranking out yeah. more movies a year than one than they all probably crank out together, the big studios and thinking, I will never be that. Like, I don't want to be part of this giant machine. But I wonder what the roller skating. I mean, is he saying there part of the joke when you hear the music is. As he's skating with confidence. He's gliding super close to the edge, not knowing that there's a problem, doing it beautifully. I mean, I love seeing Chaplin's physicality, the way he just puts on skates and goes. You know, it, his control over his body as an athlete is amazing. And then when he takes the blindfold off, because he's blindfolded and doesn't know how close he is to death, all of a sudden he can't skate anymore. You know, is there something in like, are we blindfolded as a people? Like if we see what the truth is, do we Absolutely, panic? yes. I think this <laughs> idea that we're always skating on the precipice of, like, you know, we don't know good, bad, like, and I, I think, like, once we acknowledge it, does it freeze us, you know? You know, it's this idea of, like, do we go out and live or do we go out and, uh, and do we, or do we cower? And I know that you, Amy, is, you know, you've been saying that COVID's over since early March, you know? <laughs> And Excuse uh, me. <laughs> you know, but I no, like, but like, I'll have you know, my cat and my boyfriend and I aren't going to talk to a damn person until <laughs> 2025. <laughs> but I, but I do think that there is this this part of you know this idea that like we don't even know how close we are. That's life, right? Like at any given moment, our life could be over, right? You know, from a natural disaster to somebody else's fault to our own heart attack. Like this idea, like and. And we could live in fear of that, or we could just kind of embrace that and 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 not know what the next step will be, or you know, I don't know. There's something about that I think I thought was kind of beautiful and universal. But then when you see it, how you can sometimes freeze. And maybe it's better to be naive. Maybe it's better just to to embrace every day as it comes instead of worrying about the next, you know, what could happen. I don't know. No, you're really right. And I think that because of modern times feeling like it has this grand scope. It makes me want to analyze every single scene like that. You know, he he does yeah. the boxing routine in City Lights, and the boxing routine is really funny. Like he's boxing, he's getting beaten up, beating up, and there's a bit of a joke in there of like he, he's a guy who gets knocked around, he's going to try his hardest. There he goes, but it it doesn't make me want to reach through for the deeper sociological meaning that I feel like must be here. Like this film feels thought over completely. And I mean, I'm I feel like Chaplin was always a very methodical person, always very detailed. Like really, I. Yeah, we talk about the filmmakers who are problematic on this list, and he's got to be right up at the top, man. He's a jerk, but like, as a creative, he he's astonishing every single time, and, and so I I don't know to feel like he thought even more about this one makes me I, just want to live in this film and and I and agree analyze everything. Well, I also think this movie is darker than the other films. I mean, the original ending was that the tramp suffers another nervous breakdown. And, 
And the gamin is now a nun. And they don't live happily ever after. And, you know, and then this movie was called The Masses. You know, there, you know, that was the working title of it. I think there was an element for him to go even darker than what it ended up to be. Like, and I, and I think he probably found that balance and and to his credit, he found that balance. Like, how can he say something without you walking out and feeling depressed? Because you don't walk out feeling depressed, but yet he gets all of his points across. And this goes back to our conversations about movies that are preachy, right? Like uh, that term is thrown around a lot because I feel like you can't, you can't have a movie that's preachy and entertaining. But when you do have a movie that is opening you up to an idea and you leave and you love the movie and then because you love the movie, you actually are open to the idea. That's the better film. And this movie does that. Like this was a, an immensely rewatchable movie. And it's so fun. But you leave and you think about it. You're like, oh, wow. And it, whoa. It, you know, I think we're predisposed to not like something uh, if we feel like it's lecturing us, you know. I hear what you're saying, and it makes me think about how D.W. Griffith tried to say some of these same things in Intolerance. Like, Intolerance is very much about what are the poor people doing in cities to find work, what happens when um, unions and cops get into fights and the cops attack union members and shoot people, which is what happens to one, to one of the girls in the modern segment of, of Intolerance. You know, she has basically, like you said, a lot of the same subplot as the Gamine. Like, her dad is killed during a workers' riot. And it, and it does make me sad and frustrated to think about, you know, D.W. Griffith is making that film in order to say, can we stop doing this? And then when Modern Times comes around, it's still in the news. I mean, here's 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 a news brief of the strikes that were happening when Charlie Chaplin was making Modern Times. Wives and children had tears in their eyes, and so did the strikers. Only theirs came from tear gas thrown at them by the police. This was the formation of American history repeating itself from the days of the Boston Tea Party. When men had all they could take, they had enough. And I have to admit, you know, sure, nothing changes in the 20 years between those films, but there's a part of me that was just groaning and curling into a ball that now we're 85 years after modern times and things are still this bad. The idea that this fight keeps on happening and some of the images in here just hit me really hard this weekend, you know? Images of people getting roughly arrested by the cops and the gamine hitting the cop with his own baton so she can escape. There's a union strike. The tramp walks out of the factory and accidentally steps on a piece of wood that winds up throwing a brick and starting a riot. And you can hear the chaos of the riot just in the music. ends with the with Chaplin once again being arrested for something that he didn't really do and people getting unjustly arrested and thrown into prison for things they didn't do and oh my god you know I want to believe that movies are a force for social change and this movie makes me feel all of the emotions that make me want social change and people of the 30s were agitating for social change and my god what is it gonna take to change things you know I I mean I think we're in a moment right now 
that's really interesting to me and we could probably get off on this for a long time. I won't, but um, it is not taking anything less than the most you can take, you know? And I, I feel like in the past, what we have seen is, um, you know, a Band-Aid. We're going to do this. Okay, we'll relax now. And right now, I feel like this movement that we are living in the middle of is saying, okay, and next, and next, and next. It keeps on piling on a list of demands of things that need to be deconstructed. And for the, at least the first time in my memory to see this kind of rapid and what about, and what about, and what about, and what about, and what about. It's like, and that maybe is it, you know, is, is not just taking the simple answer anymore. I mean, that it's a large, obviously a larger conversation, but it's like, but yeah, I, I do think you're right. Like it may just take like this relent, like this relentless battling back, you know, uh, to get something to actually happen. I would like that. You know, I mean, the, the factory sequences that we have here in modern times, have been touchstones since this film was made. You know, every generation I think relates to this. I mean, I'll just even list off two uh, two comedies that I think um, pointed to modern times. There is, of course, the episode of I Love Lucy where Lucy is working on a chocolate factory yeah. that gets faster and faster and faster. All right, girls. Now this is your last chance. If one piece of candy gets past you and into the packing room unwrapped, you're fired. Yes, ma'am. And of course, there's a film that I know you and I deeply, deeply love, which is Joe versus the Volcano, which has an opening where Tom Hanks goes to the factory that is very much, you know, taking some of the tone from this film. I will say that, you know, we're going to listen to a little bit of that clip, too, and that music. Um, But Joe versus the Volcano does do the joke that Charlie Chaplin doesn't do, which is the factory that Tom Hanks is working at is the American uh, Panoscope home of the rectal probe and petroleum jelly. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, I, I think this is something that we always are wrestling with, like this idea of like your identity being lost to the work that you do and, and, and not even the work that you love to do, the work that you have to do. Exactly. You know, and so it's interesting to go back and look at the reaction to this film when it came out, Yeah, you know, because... I think there was an episode a couple weeks ago. I can't even remember which one it was where I read a quote from somebody who mentioned in passing that Chaplin was a disgrace. It was a quote from a critic who I think was writing when Chaplin was still alive and had been living abroad where he had to live since the fifties and talking about like how he was just some guy who made some films and who cared what he thought anymore. I wish I could remember the exact quote was, um, and, you know, because we've cycled back around into a world in which Charlie Chaplin is thought of as one of the people without whom Hollywood would have never existed. Right. Right. And, and yet for most of his later years, he was in kind of like favored disgrace, I guess you could call it. Like, what's that guy doing for us? Where's he been? You know, we we don't we don't always let people know how much we appreciate them when they're alive. And it doesn't right. hurt when they are also kind of assholes with a still a string of marrying underage women the way that Chaplin was. But part of why we exiled him really wasn't his marriages. 
um, as much as the politics that he put forth in this film. You know, this film was seen for everybody knew exactly what Chaplin was trying to say when this film came out. And there came a time very quickly after that where the things that Chaplin were saying were considered communist. And and Chaplin became kind of the face of people who were communist and, and not trying to stick up for the American belief of hard work. And if you do go to that factory, everything's fine. And the American dream is working out just great. Yeah, it's like this idea of like shutting down people who have a, a voice. I mean, I think we try to do that all the time. Like whoever is, you know, saying something that is different, we often attack their character versus what they're saying because easier to bring down a, pur- a person than an idea. And if you can kind of connect the two, uh, you win the battle because you don't have to take down the good idea. You just have to take down the person. And then you assume that because that person's flawed, the idea is flawed. Yeah. I mean, it, the reaction is so interesting because like when this film comes out in England, it's number one and it is not number one here in America. You know, people think of it as a little bit dangerous, a little bit uncomfortable. And Chaplin is not the type of person who's going to back down from that. You know, Chaplin is the kind of person who, even when he gets the sense that the winds are changing and that to promote policies like this, which were slightly more popular in 1936 when FDR is president um, than they are when the war really starts. And then when the war starts to get more and more treacherous and people start to become more paranoid about communists in America, he is still a person who in 1942 is going to go to Carnegie, Carnegie Hall and he's going to call the audience comrades, you know? At a time when everybody's combing over everything you say, wondering right. if you are a secret communist, he's going to go in Carnegie Hall and call people comrades. And then he's going to speak up for communism. He's going to say that communists are what he calls, quote, ordinary people like ourselves who love beauty, who love life. And he says they say that communism may spread out all over the world. And I say, so what? You know, I am not a communist, but I'm proud to say that I feel pretty Anti- pro-communist. Anti-fascist and fascist, right? Like we're dealing with that right now, too, this idea like, you know, just lumping people in, you know, in this term, like making anti-fascism uh, a negative term is a really interesting kind of parallel to that. Exactly. And he never backs down. You know, he doesn't get called in front of Hueck in part because people are just like, well, we already know how he feels. You know, his views wow, are right. already He's not well trying known. to hide it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, yeah, that's right. You know, these days, if you step off the curb with your left foot, they accuse you of being a communist, he said. But right. it, the tide really starts to change. I mean, in 1952, a newspaper is called, calls Modern Times Naked Propaganda. And so it's that same year that he does leave America. He just finally takes off and he doesn't come back here until 1972, which wow. is, I mean, 20 years. And that's because yeah. he got the Oscar for um, his lifetime achievement, which I actually pulled. You know, I pulled a little bit of this so that we could hear mm-hmm. him come out and him speak at the 1972 Oscars. And words seem so futile, so feeble. I can only say that thank you for the honor of, of inviting me here. And, oh, you're wonderful, sweet people. Thank you. I mean, he gets tons of applause, which he had earned. I really feel like he had earned um and he also gets that little dig in you know what good do words do at a time like this which is something i think the tramp would say um there is though and i think this is sort of funny there's a musical called little tramp the musical that goes over chaplin's life and it starts with this idea of chaplin heading to the states in 1972 to get this oscar and wondering what he's going to say and they wrote a little song trying to imagine what chaplin would be saying as he was heading to get this oscar 
any artistic negative reviews about this mm-hmm. film. People being like, I don't like the artistry of that. Um, instead, it was pretty much political criticism. And I thought, you know, you can judge a man by his enemies. So the criticism that I decided to pick out was from none other than Joseph Goebbels, who in February oh, wow. of 1936 banned two things. He banned two things. The first one, I think we should keep an eye on, uh, Goebbels banned journalists from reporting speeches without his personal permission. Interesting. And the second thing he banned is he banned modern times because he said it was, quote, contrary to the spirit of the new Germany of Adolf Hitler. And that was for two reasons. One, he banned modern times because of its anti-industrialist message, and he thought it was pro-communism. And two, he banned modern times just because of Chaplin himself, because he thought his mustache made fun of Hitler, even though the argument is that Hitler adopted his mustache in order to look more likable. And because uh, Goebbels really believed that Chaplin was Jewish, which... To, I think we've talked about this before. Charlie Chaplin wasn't as far as we know, but Charlie Chaplin also was never going to deny being Jewish because he didn't think that that was at all. It should all be considered an insult. But Goebbels put Chaplin's name on the list of Nazi public enemy lists of, of non-Aryans. And Chaplin was like, fine, call me that. Call me a communist. Call me whatever I know what I believe in is essentially the Chaplin point of view. I love that. I love that. Love that. Love that. Obviously, this movie has been uh, parodied or aped by so many things. I can't imagine The Simpsons don't have some sort of factory montage, some sort of automation scene that recalls this film. They do. This is from an episode called Bart Has Two Mommies. And it is silent, so you're going to need to use your imagination for most of this. But the setup here is that they're at a carnival. Uh, There's a rubber duck chase. Homer really wants to win the rubber duck chase. So he starts trying to paddle after his rubber duck so that he can cheat and win. Um, And as he gets into this river where the rubber duck chase is happening, he gets sucked into a water mill. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's such a clear kind of just, yeah, so he's basically in a machine, in this gigantic machine that makes no sense of a water mill. Um, It's interesting, though, because it's normally I feel like the Simpsons also take a moment to talk about social stuff, but that's really just, they're like, oh, that's funny when Charlie Chaplin's like sucked into a machine, let's do it even worse, make it a little bit more itchy and scratchy version of that machine. (laughs) Yeah, that is not music that Chaplin would pick out. So, Amy, I mean, you know, this has been a good conversation. Obviously, this is my favorite one. Um, We heard from everybody at the top of this episode about their, you know, who they want on the list. But I guess my question to you as we wrap this up is, 
do you think all three need to be on this list? We are always saying we don't need another Western. We don't need another war film. We don't need a Scorsese. We don't need a this. Do we need three chaplains? No. No. No, 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 no. I'm just going to make myself say no a bunch of times to make sure I commit to it. You know, I, yeah. I mean it. Every time I watch a Chaplin film, I'm like, this is the greatest film that's ever been created. And I feel that way about so much of them. But I want to try to stick with modern times. Like maybe never show me another Chaplin film again so I can just mm-hmm. stick with modern times. This is the first Chaplin film I ever loved. Um, it's the first one I ever saw. You know, I'm surprised that it's actually this low on the list because I would have assumed if you had asked me, you know, before I started the show, which Chaplin is rated the highest, I would have guessed modern times. I mean, to me, that Absolutely, feels like yeah. the touchstone. So the fact that it's in the 80s, I find really bewildering. Yeah, it's um, bizarre. Yeah, I, I think this is his film. You know, this is the film that I think expresses everything he really wanted to say. I do really love The Great Dictator. But between all of them, I would I would pick Modern Times out of out of I, everything because it's just it's all here. It's all here. I and it's wonderfully agree. done. And it's hilarious. I will. I laughed out loud myself here on the couch. Yeah. With my cat. Uh, well, you know, next week we're going to do another film that has a little bit of a romance and a little uplifting. Uh, our last visit with Frank Capra next week for a movie called It Happened One Night, um, which I've never seen. Uh, and just based on how I've been enjoying Frank Capra on this podcast, I'm so excited to get into a little bit. Um, but we have a call to action for you for next week's episode. Um, there are very few romantic comedies on this list, and, and I think there's something so engaging about them. What's a romantic comedy that you would like to see on this list? I, I think let's take Harry Met Sally off this debate because we've talked about that a lot. I want to hear some other ones, other films that really pop for you that, you know, that feels special and, and unique. Um, I think that this list definitely is missing that genre. Um, so uh, hit us with your best ones. Give us a call at 747-666-5824, 747-666-5824. And uh, Amy, it happened one night, streaming pretty much everywhere you can get uh, streaming film. So it's an easy one to get. So we'll see you next week for It Happened One Night. 